Coming up on today's show, a national summit on Islamophobia today following a national summit on anti-Semitism. Yesterday, we'll speak with Erwin Kotler. Are we past bilingualism in Canada? There's a lot of outrage over our Governor General being selected even though she doesn't speak French. And are we letting down our Afghan interpreters and support staff that stood side by side with our troops during conflict? Talking about hate crimes in our country, and we know that we're seeing a rash of them. And, and you, you know what? They really span the spectrum. Uh, you could you could classify uh, church arsons as that. We know there's been incidents of Islamophobia and certainly anti-Semitism, all of them on the increase. There's all kinds. And um, the government's taking a look at all of it, but being fairly focused over the course of yesterday and today. Um the most common targets, of course, are identifiable minorities, and particularly Jewish and Muslim Canadians. And the federal government is holding virtual summits to deal with anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Islamophobia today, anti-Semitism yesterday. One of the participants in yesterday's summit was Erwin Kotler, former federal minister of justice. He joins us now to talk about uh, the summit that was held yesterday, what was discussed and how it went. Um, Mr. Kotler, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Anatol, good speaking with you. Um, first and foremost, we, we know that anti-Semitism has always been an issue. It, it has always been something that we need to stand on guard against. But in recent months, we have certainly seen an alarming increase in our country, haven't we? Yes, we've seen an old, new, uh, global, escalating, virulent, uh, and even lethal anti-Semitism. It reached a tipping point in the recent Hamas war against Israel, where uh, Jews uh, are now threatened and targeted in their neighborhoods and in the streets on campuses and in their communities. Synagogues have been torched, memorials defaced, institutions vandalized, cemeteries desecrated. And all of this has found expression in two particularly dramatic developments. The first that you uh, referenced, I'm referring now to the alarming rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes. 2020 saw the highest level of anti-Semitic hate crimes ever reached, uh, not only in Canada, but the U.S. and Europe. But halfway through 2021, we've already reached the level of hate crimes for all of 2020. The second uh, very uh, disturbing phenomenon is the incendiary anti-Semitic hate in the social media. That also Mm -hmm. uh, reached a peak in one week in May, for example. There were 17,000 tweets that Hitler was right. And a just-released study has reported a seismic increase of 912% in anti-Semitic hate in one year on the social media platform TikTok, where 41% of its 1.2 billion users are between the ages of 16 and 24. So this pandemic of of anti-Semitism really underpinned the calling of this national summit yesterday. So the summit yesterday, just tell us how it went, what was done, how, uh, who we heard from, and, um, you know, what was, what was said? Just give us your synopsis of what happened yesterday. Well, there were a diverse set of representatives from uh, the Jewish community, not, not only uh, Jewish community organizations and, and their leadership, but young people, for example, uh, students who reported uh, being marginalized and stigmatized and, uh, on, on the campuses and reported, you know, having to choose between their Jewish identity and acceptability, let us say, in uh, progressive uh, causes. Uh, we heard also from biracial uh, Canadians, uh, Ethiopian uh, Jews, who spoke about how they had been the target of both uh, racial as as well as uh, traditional uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, we also heard from uh, Holocaust survivors who spoke about uh, how they were sort of hearing echoes from the past. And uh, the, the presence 
of the prime minister and, and the ministers of the government was important because they were listening uh, to all this uh, testimony, to all this, you know, lived experiences. And I have to say that uh, the prime minister and the government ministers uh, responded um, not only very sensitively to what they heard, but in an action-oriented way. It committed themselves uh, to taking certain actions, some that were announced, for example, uh, security infrastructure mm-hmm. funding, uh, combating the incendiary hate speech that I mentioned uh, in the social media, uh, references to using the four P's, as I shared with the uh, audience, uh, for combating uh, hate crimes, namely uh, prevention, uh, <clears throat> protection of the targeted victims, the third being prosecution of the perpetrators, and the fourth being partnership between federal, provincial, municipal authorities in the combating of hate crime. So one of the more important things in this uh, conference was the undertaking with respect to necessary action to combat anti-Semitism. Well, that's the key, Mr. Kotler. I mean, the, the talking is great, and I think you're right. It's beneficial, and, uh, you know, having the ministers and the government involved is certainly um, very, very welcome. And I know you proposed a plan and some and some action items that can be done, but we need to see the action. Uh, that's the, the follow-up is going to be the key here, right? It's, it's great to have these summits and share the stories and, and, you know, raise the awareness, but we need to see the action in the follow-up. Uh, You're absolutely right. That's why I shared what I called uh, 10 points for a national action plan. And these are sort of metrics by which we can identify uh, is the action necessary action being taken? Uh, Is the commitment being uh, implemented? And I shared some of the commitments that they have undertaken to implement. But we now have a set of metrics and uh, we have to look at this uh, national summit as not being a one-time thing, but being an ongoing a commitment to turn words into action. Uh, that's what's important. We need to have a national implemented action plan. So what's the follow-up? What is in place following this summit today uh, on Islamophobia, the one yesterday on anti-Semitism? Um, following these summits, is there is there workshops? Is there breakouts? Is there committees that are being formed to actually start to implement some of this? Or do you know where it goes from here? Yes, we will have an ongoing um, uh, involvement with this, myself in my capacity as a special envoy for preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. I'm in ongoing uh, representations to and conversations with uh, the government, including the prime minister, ministers of justice, uh, etc. I believe that the civil society leaders who were there yesterday you know, will continue their representations and dialogue. And as I said, we will have a set of metrics by which we not only can identify, but ensure uh, that the necessary action is uh, being implemented. And I think it'll be a similar thing with regard to the National Summit Re-Islamophobia today. There are some uh, crossovers between Mm -hmm. the two. As you mentioned, uh, both communities have been the target of uh, hate crimes. Both have been the target of incendiary you know, speech on the social media. So I, I think there are matters in which we can even work together in common cause. So as a result of these two summits, uh, we can actually join forces for the implementation of some of these actions, which will be important for both communities, but really uh, for Canada as a whole, because as was said yesterday with regard to anti-Semitism, it's toxic to democracies. It's the, uh, <clears throat> at this point, uh, as we've talked about it in terms of this is the canary in the mineshaft of 
global evil today, and therefore the combating of anti-Semitism has to be seen as part of the larger struggle right. uh, for human rights and human dignity. Thank you, Mr. Kotler, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Not at all, and good speaking with you. Thank you very much. That's Erwin Kotler former Federal Minister of Justice, and as you heard, uh, an envoy to the government on um, anti-Semitism. Mary Simon, you know the name, she was recently appointed uh, Governor General, first Indigenous person appointed to the post, and it was widely celebrated, right? Um, Lots of praise, a lot of people really pleased with the selection. Um, strong ties to the North, a lifetime of extremely notable work both in our country and around the world. Uh, pretty spectacular resume, but not everyone is standing up and applauding. There have been hundreds, believe it or not, hundreds of official complaints have been filed to the Canadian Commissioner of Official Languages because Mary Simon doesn't speak French. She is bilingual. She speaks anuktic, but she does not speak French. So many complaints have been filed over this that an official investigation into her appointment has actually been launched. No, really. Uh, That's true. An investigation into her appointment has been launched um, because she doesn't speak French. Now, it opens up a whole area of discussion. As you know, if you want to work for the federal government, bilingualism is often a requirement. There's all kinds of jobs. And we're at a point now where is that something that is serving us or is that actually a detriment to us as a Canadian society? Is it something we need to move away from? So let's get some insight on that. We are going to chat now with Rupa Subramania, who's a researcher and a writer and a columnist for the National Post. Um, Rupa, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Shay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I loved your piece because I think you asked some wonderful questions here. Um, you know, most of Canada is not bilingual. It's a very small segment of our population that actually speaks both official languages. So, you know, it's not just her. The vast majority of Canadians are in the same boat here as seen as not suitable options for that position and many, many more, right? We, we exclude so many people. Right. Um, so just to give you a snapshot of bilingualism in Canada... Um, and these numbers come from my piece, uh, roughly 18% or less than one in five people in the country are fluent in both English and French. Uh, and this number has essentially remained the same from the 2011 census. Um, and 57% of Canadians call English their mother tongue, and only 21% say it's French. That, believe it or not, is actually less than the number who say some third language is their mother tongue. Uh, which is roughly at 22%. And then if you look at the provinces, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, only 5% pe- of the people there are bilingual, while it's a little higher in Ontario at about 11%. Quebec is by far the most bilingual province at 44.5%. So basically, outside of Quebec, most people don't speak French. Um, and so official bilingualism, I feel, adversely impacts a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question. It's, it's you know, as you say, 22% of Canadians do speak another language other than English, but it's not French, right. and only 18% do. So when you want to talk about the official languages, it's not even providing mm-hmm. an accurate representation of the country. You know, I, I mean, th- that's not the actual reality we're living in at this point. 
Well, yeah. So, so another reality is that uh, Canada is, uh, you know, welcoming an increasing number of immigrants. And if you look at the immigrant population, for example, they say that uh, only 13 percent of immigrants coming to this country uh, consider uh, uh, identify as fully bilingual. And this is coming from the 2011 census. More than 80 percent of immigrants say that their first language is neither English nor French. Um, and most immigrants speak um, other than English. Yeah. They speak other languages uh, like uh, Mandarin, Arabic, Hindi, or Spanish. Um, so this is the reality of uh, Canada today that uh, most people outside of Quebec just don't speak, uh, are not fully bilingual. And, um, and, and, and that is the reality of uh, Canada today. So when we take a look at, you know, um, not only Governor General, but this affects so many different jobs, you know, in, in both the public and the private sector in terms of that bilingualism requirement. But right. it gives a massive advantage to the people of Quebec if you've got roughly half of Quebecers who are uh, bilingual in both official languages and it drops to like, you know, four and five percent in other provinces, large parts of the country right. are just excluded from a lot of these positions. Absolutely. Uh, they are, and it also ends up creating regional disparities. So I live in the national capital region, so Ottawa, it clearly privileges Ottawa and Gatineau, uh, uh, native French speakers in, the, in in this area, and most of whom come from Quebec. Um, and if you look at the federal government, um, uh, again, uh, a recent report by the Treasury Board shows that uh, francophones are overrepresented, uh, especially in executive ranks, like at the DM level, uh, where almost a third are francophones. Um, and so, you know, not only does this privilege uh, people from Quebec, um, it also uh, creates all of these regional disparities. And so we're, we're, we're principally looking to, at least in the federal government, I feel that uh, they're looking at bilingualism imperative as a, as, a, as a precondition for hiring someone as opposed to the other things that they yeah. could be doing in their jobs, right? So it's not necessarily based on skills and, you know, you could be speaking five other languages that would be relevant to that position, but... Uh, bilingualism imperative is is the wall that most people um, end up encountering, and it's not just immigrants; it's native-born Canadians. It's it's everybody really who doesn't live, uh, who you know, who, uh, people who don't come from Quebec. And you know what? You recount your own personal experience with this. I mean, you speak multiple multiple languages, um, but right. like you say, you're automatically it's a non-starter for a bunch of government jobs just because you don't one of those languages isn't French. It is, it is a non, non-starter, and I just want to briefly tell you that, you know, when, um, you know, I've been here for more than two decades, and, um, you know, and I, I, I'll tell you, as, as an immigrant, uh, you're expected to speak at least one of the official languages, so either English or French. No one says that you need to be bilingual to come to Canada, but that story changes when you move to Ottawa, where you realize that uh, for most of the jobs in this area, for most jobs in this area, you need to be, uh, uh, you know, proficient in both English and French. Um, and uh, and this is a roadblock that most uh, people, most immigrants, um, you know, encounter. It's uh, not not really talked about very much, but but it is there. I personally personally experienced this. Uh, I'm fully qualified. I've studied in Canada, but you know, I encounter this all the time. I'm, uh, I, you know, it's, I'm automatically screened out for these positions. Um, do you think, with the fact that the prime minister overlooked this 
you know, requirement that's typically there and went ahead mm-hmm. and appointed somebody that doesn't speak French, maybe, maybe we're at a position where we may move past what many people see as a ridiculous requirement in so many ways? Well, you know, Shay, the world is changing. You know, we live in a globalized world. Yeah. Uh, it's not the Canada of the 1960s or the Canada of Pierre Trudeau even. So whether uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau admits it or not, uh, by bypassing this bilingualism requirement in the case of Mary Simon, uh, uh, who doesn't speak French, uh, that Canada of 2021, uh, in the Canada of 2021, inclusion is more important than a rigid adherence to bilingualism. Um, I personally think it's, ta- it's high time we have a serious national debate on bilingualism. I know the, I know the politicians are not going to touch it, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as it's a really contentious uh, issue. But I think I think the rest of us really need to ask ourselves, uh, where is bilingualism, official bilingualism, actually taking us? Uh, let me just give you a brief example. Sure. Uh, this, is, uh, this is important context. So if you take Spain, for example, um, Spain has a linguistic minority, the Catalonians. But Catalonia is not imposed on the rest of the country. All of Spain doesn't have to learn Catalonian. So that's and 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 you know you have the linguistic minority uh, uh, groups in Italy, for example, uh, northern Italy, uh, German, German and Italy are official languages. But German, can you imagine imposing German on the rest of rest of Italy? I I, I don't think that the you know that I don't think that would work. Yeah, it is. It is a strange situation, and and like you say, it, it it's become almost untenable. I mean, we understand why it was done, but you you just take a look at the the impact that it has on pretty much the entire country outside of the province of Quebec, and it 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 creates an unfair playing field. So we'll have to see where this goes. These official complaints that have been filed, um, what happens with those? Do you have any idea? And I know this might be a little off off topic, but you know, official right. complaints being filed. I mean, do those go anywhere? Is there any risk to her appointment? Um, it's hard to say, uh, Shay. I mean, I, I, you know, this is this is really. Uh, I, I, I don't really know where this is going to go. Uh, the commissioner has uh, indicated that he's he's taking this seriously, but uh, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know where this is going to go. But hopefully, you know, this this sparks uh, a debate. Uh, you know, uh, that you know, where is official bilingualism going? Has it outlived its sell-by date? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it has. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Rupa, thank you so much for your time this morning. I, I really oh, appreciate it. Thanks, Shay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great, great conversation. You bet. That is Rupa Subramania, who is a researcher and a writer and a columnist for the National Post. Um, and, yeah, came across her piece. And she makes some really, really good points. And you know what? I think for all of us growing up in this country, it's just something that we've accepted, right? Uh, if you, you know, we have French language classes. We have... Um, you know, French immersion classes and all those things. And learning a second language is fantastic. It really is. But a lot of people do it because they want to work for the government or an airline. I mean, it does open your employment opportunities in this country if you can speak French, which if you take a look at it, doesn't make sense just based on the demographics of our country. We've got a situation on our hands in this country uh, dealing with some people who served us very, very well. And um, everybody in the country seems to be in agreement that we have a debt that needs to be repaid here. We've got a group of people in Afghanistan who served essentially alongside our troops as 
translators, guides, things like that. And um, now we know that the United States is leaving that country, uh, and the Taliban is continuing to advance and take more territory, and they have publicly stated that one of their goals is to hunt down and kill anybody who worked with any of the foreign forces that were in that country, which means the very interpreters that work side-by-side with our troops. Um, It's in stark contrast to what's happening in the United States, where they already have a plan in place, and at the end of this month, hundreds, thousands of these people from Afghanistan will be transported into the United States. They'll be housed on a military base as they go through their immigration process and get their visas and things like that, but they will be safe. Canada doesn't have such a plan, and that's a problem. So joining us to talk more about it now, we have Jasraj Singh Hallen, who is the conservative critic for immigration, refugees, and citizenship. Um, Mr. Hallen, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me this morning. This obviously is a situation that I think, you know, most Canadians can understand that we, we have a debt that needs to be repaid here, right? Essentially, that's what it is. These people did us a service risking their own lives, you're absolutely right, and uh, this is exactly the the problem that these brave interpreters and support staffs gave everything to serve our country, put their lives on the line, and now their lives are at risk because of that. And we're seeing delays, and it's unfortunate that the Liberal government, as always, is not acting and it's going to cost lives. Well, this is the thing. The Prime Minister was asked about this just this week, and he said, yes, we have a moral obligation to help these people and to make sure that they're safe. They served us. We need to serve them. But there's absolutely no plan in place that we know of. Is there? Where are we at in terms of getting these people to safety? Uh, You know, Shay, this is a a typical liberal example of making an announcement and not having a, a, a solid plan or even action taken after that. They're great with announcements, never any follow-through. And I'll give you another example that's straight out of Afghanistan as well. Uh, There are Sikh and Hindu refugees that are also uh, being persecuted and killed. They're being forced, converted, uh, and just under a lot of persecution. There was a program that was created that brought over some of those families in 2019. But even that program, it took them four years of dragging their feet to do it. Now, last year... Uh, multi-party MPs have asked for that same program to be used for the remaining families. And that was almost uh, over a year ago. And many organizations like the Manmeet Singh Puller Foundation, the World Sikh Organization, have continually asked for this program to be implemented again. And we're seeing that the Liberals are dragging their feet once again, and there's no action or any word of having those families saved and getting out of Afghanistan. The point is that this government has is very good at making these announcements, but it's costing lives when they're inacting and not even saying anything to help those people out. And we're seeing that again now. They need to implement a plan to get them out. There needs to be that special program that was created. There was a special program that was created in October of 2009 by then Immigration Minister and now Premier Jason Kenney just for this exact circumstance, and that needs to be implemented or even used in, in whatever way they want to change it to mm-hmm. make it more, uh, more you know, uh, it should be up to date. And we need to get those people out of there. Even if we can't get them to Canada right away, we need to get them to a safe country. Did I characterize the situation in Afghanistan correctly with the Taliban openly and publicly stating that this is one of their goals to find these people, to hunt them down and kill them? That's how dire it is in Afghanistan right now. 
Look, the Taliban does not care uh, for anything, and we've seen that. You're absolutely right. It's not just these interpreters that are being hunted. It's also religious minorities that are also being persecuted all across by the Taliban. Canada needs to show leadership. And it's very unfortunate that Canada, under this Liberal government, has been not seen as a world leader anymore. We, we look like we're a foreign affairs mess right now. The fact that the Americans are able to act ahead of time and have a plan in place and Canada is far behind as usual means that we, we are not taking this serious at all. And to date, there is no action being taken. You know, you and talk again, it's costing lives. You talk about being a world leader. I mean, that ship has sailed. Uh, at this point, it would serve us well to be a follower and get on board with what the United States is doing. A- at least there's action happening there. By the end of this month, we're going to see hundreds, thousands of people ferried out of Afghanistan to safety in the U.S. So it's not even a matter of being first or leading. It's just it's getting on board with what our allies are doing. Uh, exactly. And that's the point that you said it right. It's It's action that's not being shown. And that, again, that's this liberal uh, government's mantra is let's make a bunch of announcements, not have a plan for it or follow through. And again, this is, it's very unfortunate that this is costing lives. Um, where do we go from here? I guess that's the question. I know you guys are, are making the case and uh, we're talking about it here on the air and, and talking about the situation. Where do we, is, is there a timeline that the government has implemented where we may get more information? Where does it stand in terms of the official channels right now? Uh, this is the thing that everyone is waiting for, especially those interpreters and sports staffs, that we don't have a timeline. Uh, thank you to those brave veterans that are here that are helping out on their own and providing supports to the to the interpreters and support staffs that are in Afghanistan right now because they couldn't rely on this liberal government. Our path forward should be we need to implement that program immediately. Like you said, if, if that means that we need to follow suit with some of the other countries but we need to show action now and that's what's missing and the other unfortunate thing is this shows a really bad example for anyone else who would even think about wanting to serve our country of course when it comes to another situation and that's the very unfortunate part and we need to show leadership now based on that yeah, and you know what? I mean, you can't overstate that enough. God forbid we find ourselves in another similar situation. This, 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 this will be reputational. It, it's not the kind of a thing that will be, you know, forgotten about. And people, when they're looking about, you know, if they want to help out, if they want to get involved, Canada will be low on the list. Uh, exactly, and and that that's very unfortunate that we cannot help serve those that help serve us, and that's that's a really bad example, and. As the critic for immigration, what we've seen is this liberal-created backlog mess has not only kept families from reuniting and caused many hardships, but we're seeing this as a clear example of that same backlog, and there's been thousands of refugee applications that are stuck in that backlog that are causing immense amount of hardships for people and will cost more lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Hallen, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That is Jasraj Singh Hallen, who is the conservative critic for immigration, refugees, and citizenship. And, you know, just as a Canadian, um, and we know that our troops were involved there, and we're gone. You know, our troops have left for for the most part. Um, And you take a look at the situation, the support that was provided by people in country, the Afghan people, who knew the risks and took them to help us and to help themselves, Understood. No question about it. I get it. Um, But at the same time, they risked their very lives 
to step up and to help Canadian troops. Um, and now we're at a situation where now that all of you know the U.S. troops are leaving by the end of this summer, um, the Taliban is just running back across that country and seizing control day by day and have publicly and openly stated that one of their goals is to hunt down anybody who provided support to the foreign forces that were in that country. So you've got people that work side by side with Canadian vets in that country, assisting them, interpreting, guides, all kinds of different support staff. Um, it seems to me that it should be job one to protect those people and to pay them back for what they did and risk their lives doing. But uh, as we heard, we don't have a plan. We can't say, like in the United States, they can say, hey, you're all coming to Fort Lee. We know it. We're putting you on planes. We're going to worry about the immigration and the visas and all the rest of that stuff once you get here. But we're going to get you to safety. Get on these planes. We'll take you to Fort Lee. You stay there until we get you processed, and then we will deal with it. Job one is making sure that you're safe. Canada hasn't done it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.